Welcome to the Virginia Economic Review podcast. This is Stephen Moray, president of the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. And today I'm delighted to have the opportunity to visit with Jim Rosenbaum, who is a professor of sociology, education, and social policy at Northwestern University. Jim, it's it's a great honor to meet you. Your work was an inspiration for my own doctoral dissertation several years ago, and it continues to inspire our work in Virginia on improving employment outcomes for individuals who pursue post-secondary education. You've done quite a bit of research in this area, much of which has resulted in some new initiatives that have actually been implemented in higher education. You've been one of the most important voices in the field. So we're just delighted to have you with us today for our podcast. I thought I would kick it off. You recently published a book with a couple of co-authors, I believe, called Bridging the Gaps, College Pathways to Career Success. And in that book, you talk about three gaps, students taking courses without getting credits, students getting credits that didn't count for credentials, and then getting credentials that don't have payoffs in the labor market. I wonder if you could talk briefly about those three problems, as well as, at least in broad strokes, the solutions to those gaps, or how to better close those gaps. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. The focus on gaps is important because we designed the higher education system for a certain group of students. And we all know what college is. It's the experience that we had. And that is in a traditional college with traditional procedures. Fortunately, we have expanded opportunities for college now to nearly everybody. It is astounding to see in the cohort of students we studied, the cohort of, they were seniors in 2004. And we looked at what happened to them over the next eight years. 90% of high school graduates go to college. They don't all go at once. The the usual statistic is about two-thirds. But over the next few years, many more students realize, I don't have a chance unless I go to college. And they they change their mind. They, They raise their expectations and they go to college. The problem is college has not been well designed for many of these students. And that leads to the gaps that you just mentioned. Particularly the non-traditional sort of cohorts. That's exactly right. We have students who are motivated to go to college and they can benefit from certain kinds of college, but we give them a one-size-fits-all model. And that doesn't work very well for many students. And so we end up with students basically facing each of those gaps And some of the gaps are of our own construction, where we have created a system which looked fine by our traditional criteria, but when matched against the new students, it doesn't work. And so, in essence, what's useful about this perception about gaps is we created them, we can uncreate them, and we can actually see the ways to to address the problems that we face. And here the problems are very serious. Of the students who go to community college, community college is wonderful. It creates open access at very low cost and meets labor market demands. But community colleges have very poor success rates of completion of any credential. And if you don't complete a credential, you don't get a payoff. And so we need to be able to rethink what are we doing here what kind of college is going to be beneficial to the new kinds of students. And there's a lot that can be beneficial, and it turns out it's worth more than we thought. 
what we call sub-baccalaureate credentials, certificates and associate degrees. They had lower average earnings, and that's well known. What's not known is the overlap of earnings but with BAs is enormously strong. The top 25% of people with a one-year certificate earn more than most BAs earn. And on the other end, a very comparable figure, the bottom 25% of BAs earn less than most certificate holders earn. The findings are even stronger for associate degrees. So we have big earnings overlaps and the one-year certificates and two-year associate degrees have great value and they're not generally appreciated. There's some reasons why these gaps have occurred. I guess, I suppose a lot of it, as you mentioned, is that we've kind of focused on these traditional college students and perhaps not redesigned the system or at least created pathways in the system sufficient to you know, support those non-traditional students. But why do you think it's taking so long for the United States to be able to shift toward a model that would better serve sort of the broad array of students that higher education serves in this country? I think one of the ironic features of the American system is we are very idealistic and we're accomplishing a lot of our ideals. And so when I say 90% of high school graduates are going to college, think about your high school class and the diversity of interests and the diversity of skills in that. We are succeeding beyond anything I thought was possible in terms of getting people into college. That's a success that creates its own problems. And so part of our problem is just that. The other part is, and this, this is not a good thing, we often blame students for their failures and often the, the, the deck is stacked against them. And so we need to do a better job of understanding to what extent are we putting people in a situation where they can't win? And to what extent are there other options that are not usually thought of where they can win? And I think there we, we, we've got some of the pieces in place, but we're not we don't have the advice in place. We don't have the advising procedure in place. We totally skimp on investing in counselors and advisors and in giving them the information they need to give good advice. So I see those as sort of the main obstacles to really benefiting. The system itself actually offers some of these good options. We just are not very good about realizing it and making them known about. You mentioned the issue with counselors. I mean, as I look at the research that's been done about higher education and labor market, it does seem to be one of the most common sort of broadly shared recommendations, if you will, to make the system work better is to improve the availability and the quality of it sort of advising and coaching both in K-12 and in college as well. And yet we don't seem to be making much progress in that direction. In fact, there's some evidence that quite a bit of institutions are actually going the other direction. What has to happen to sort of make some real progress in that area? Well, there's one thing that's, that, that is well known and is very much true. The student caseload for counselors is abysmal. In high schools, it's not good, 300 students to one counselor. In community colleges, it's horrid, 1,000 students to one counselor. And that's a lowball number. They, they, there are many cases I know of of 2,000, 3,000 or more. We do not have a counseling system in the community colleges, basically. But the other piece is something we can do without very much cost, and that is devise systematic advice that we can give to students about what their options are, the advantages of those options, who they work particularly well for and who they don't work for. Giving realistic advice in a systematic way 
And here, the kind of thing that researchers do, I think, can be very helpful because researchers look at what actually happens. They're not, they, don't, they don't just look at what the goals are, they look at what the actual outcomes are. And we have ways of looking at real outcomes and saying who succeeds with this kind of option, who doesn't succeed, and what are the other alternatives for this kind of a person. And we've greatly expanded access to college, but we haven't changed the academic achievement level of our graduates. And they're not prepared for traditional college level work, but they could do many of these other programs and get some good payoffs. The world has changed and we need to get that information to counselors right away. And they don't have it. They know they don't have it. They know that there's something more going on that they're not fully aware of. And so they give general advice, but they're reluctant. They're reluctant to give very much advice. And so that incapacitates them. Even if they had a decent ratio of students to handle, they don't have the information they need. And that we could provide. Yeah, so talk about that for a minute, because clearly I think you would agree that probably the, more, at least one of the biggest challenges in addressing the need for, for better, more extensive counseling is funding. Yes. And that's a constraint in probably most schools, most community colleges. But you also talk about something where there's a lot of economies of scale, if you will, with having just this, the information base. You could almost imagine a technology solution there. Who yeah. has gotten closest to creating something like this that's accessible? to prospective college students? That's a great question. And I, and I think it's I think it's the one that we should be working on now. Because it would have a huge ROI, right? Compared to obviously what it would cost to have many, many, many more counselors across the country. That's exactly right. Part of its software, Naviance software and, so, and other brands of software are often very useful for advising students about which college to attend. And that kind of matching of students' background achievement programs of study, interests, geographical preferences can be inputted into the software and advice can be given. Unfortunately, that doesn't go far enough. We really need to be developing software and actually even sheets of paper that would guide counselors to respond to students whose achievement is much below the usual average traditional college entrance achievement and the alternative interests, the kinds of love of uh, doing technical things, working with electronics, working with mechanical things. These kinds of alternatives aren't in the software that, that I know of, and yet they're important for people's choices. We've gotten to a place where we're admitting students, new kinds of students. We haven't gotten to the place where we can tell them where they can benefit and where they can actually have their own interests and own abilities recognized. Yeah, I, I just see that as a huge opportunity and one that could be employed across the country, right? A really good tool were created, even perhaps with some customization. The other thing that really resonates with me, the data sets that are currently available often talk about, well, here's all the jobs and what they pay and what the required education is, let's say. But there's not enough of a sense of how do you navigate from where you are today to these outcomes. It's absolutely a missing link, and it is a crucial link. Students want advice about these things. They want someone who is knows them even a little bit, who can make a judgment about what's an appropriate set of goals, what are alternative goals, and to work that through. And so students need that kind of advice. That massive list of jobs that are available, the Bureau of Labor Statistics book. I don't know if it's still done in paper, but when it was done in paper, it was four inches thick of listing just jobs and aspects of jobs. And it's overwhelming in a way that 
students can't possibly cope with it. We need to find ways to target more clearly and make those targets consistent with a local labor market. I don't know if you saw, there was a recent piece essentially made the case for a new learning ecosystem. And one of the key features of that, I think they called navigation. It was basically this whole idea about helping essentially individuals to assess kind of where they are today, to understand the options available to them and sort of the different pathways to get there. And I certainly agree with you, gosh, the opportunity for a technology-enabled solution seems like a big part of it. I think the, the report was called a new learning ecosystem. And essentially, you could probably call it a new learning slash earning ecosystem because it was really about how do we enable individuals with very diverse circumstances to be able to understand all the options available to them and to be able to make progress toward those outcomes and considering not just the traditional BA, but also sub-baccalaureate programs, also certificate programs, much in line with what you've talked about. So when I look at what's out there, it, it, it seems to me that we have sort of glimpses of a potential future that would be a much more productive place to get to, but there's still a lot of work left to get there. And one of the counterparts of this is the college system where we offer an overwhelming number of options for students to take without very much guidance. And we give them no indication of which ones fit a pattern, which ones contribute. The gaps that you were mentioning earlier, many of them come from students making bad choices that they couldn't anticipate. And so one of the recommendations that I've made in the past and is now being adopted quite generally, is creating guided pathways. And these pathways are sort among the thousands of courses you can take and say, if you want this goal, here are the things you should do to take it. And this is when you should take this course. Taking them out of sequence often doesn't work and doesn't give you credit and, and leads to failure. So regimenting the, the curriculum in a way that makes it clear. You get one choice, you choose your goal, and then the college will provide all of the steps in the right order that you need to get there. In your book, you talk a bit about the college scorecard and perhaps some, you know, some benefits of it, but also some shortcomings of it. And obviously, I don't know if you've had a chance to peruse the new version, but in the last uh, little bit here, last few months, a new version has come out. I'd be curious about um, what do you see as the benefits of that, as how it's evolved, but also could you elaborate a little bit on what you think could be done to improve it? I know one of the things, for example, you talked about earnings as certainly one relevant outcome, but there's also non-monetary benefits of education and work that perhaps could be incorporated in some way as well. The college scorecard looks at easily measured features, and that comes out to getting a job, maybe getting a job in the right area, and earnings. And there's much more that is important, especially in the early career. When you first start, we all often think you want to get better earnings. It turns out probably that's often the wrong answer. It's better to choose to sacrifice earnings and get training, get experiences that are going to be valued. And students complain sometimes that the college aims them at lower earnings than they could get on their own but their earnings on their own doesn't give them relevant job experience and it is gonna be a dead end for their career. And the college actually knows what are the good training experiences you could get under your belt in your first jobs that are gonna to lead to a much more successful career later. And so aiming too much for that first job is a problem. I think the scorecard is well-intentioned and to some degree can be used cautiously but it's not the whole story, and if followed 
too rigorously with particularly with high stakes punishments it could do damage you'll hear the statistic about a person with a bachelor's makes you know a million dollars more than someone without and so forth over the course of their lifetimes as you rightly pointed out there's a huge distribution in the employment outcomes earnings outcomes that individuals have one of the areas of study that i think is getting a little bit more attention lately is this underemployment problem you know we have historically low unemployment but underemployment even of bachelor's grads is quite material in the us some estimates i think most estimates i would say are probably you know order of magnitude 30% or so of full time employed adults in the U.S. with a bachelor's degree or higher not working in a college-level occupation. I'd be curious about what you think about the research in that area right now and, and if there's anything that you've sort of gleaned about what you think could be done to kind of improve on that situation. It's a great question and, and very important. We have looked at the B.A. degree as offering a good education but also as offering high status and we do that based on <laughs> averages as if everybody was at an average. Right, right, right. And there's wide variation within the earnings of BAs and in the earnings of other degrees as well. And it turns out that there's an enormous overlap between these. So if we were just going on earnings, we would come to the conclusion that mostly there's it's a big overlap and students who choose a BA are often not going to have higher earnings than someone with an associate degree, even though they're spending many more years getting it. And usually the, those last years are ones that you didn't expect to have to be paying for. And so there's a lot of problems with the BA that we are not very candid about. And as a result, students are caught shorthanded with not enough money and not enough time and promises they made to family and promises they made to employers. The Underemployment also relates to field of study. Students with a BA come from various majors, and those majors change the outcomes enormously. And so a major in a STEM field, everybody knows there's great value in that. The value of a bachelor's degree in English or a bachelor's degree in some other liberal arts field may not be as great. And this, this question of variation turns out to be especially important actually here. But more important than earnings is what's the future trajectory and to what extent are students going to be getting a good career that's going to have a future. And students often don't understand that and advisors are not very good about telling them. This is crucial that you make a decision of getting a job that's gonna have a future for you. Yeah, there was a, a piece of work Burning Glass and Strata published maybe been 18 months ago called the Permanent Detour. Really interesting study where they looked at resumes to create kind of a, a synthetic longitudinal look at employment outcomes. And what they found was that the underemployment was certainly, as expected, you know, significant, particularly for recent grads. But the really novel finding, you know, there's, a I think, a general expectation in the U.S. that college grads Many of them will often, let's say 40% or so, may start off underemployed, but then will eventually get a college-level occupation. What they found was really interesting. Their underemployment estimates were similar to those derived from other methods, but they found that about two-thirds of those that initially start underemployed 
will stay underemployed 10 years later. But basically, there's a, a stickiness, if you will, to it. And as I sort of think about my own study in this space over time, I think there are two sort of factors that come to mind. One that I really uh, grew to appreciate when I was working on my doctorate was, you know, when you think about human capital development, we often think of formal education, right? But an awful lot of what a person develops, their sort of human capital, it happens on the job, right? And so if you get a college level occupation coming out of college, you're actually sort of continuing that process of developing your sort of productive capacity in a way perhaps that a non-college job would not. There was another study, and I'm forgetting the author, but it was a really interesting piece of work that showed that employers offering college level jobs would rather hire an individual who is an unemployed bachelor's grad than an underemployed bachelor's grad. They literally would choose the person <laughs> that that is, does not have have a job over the person that has a job but is working at, say, Starbucks, if you will. It's a pervasive issue. It's a really serious issue. And it turns out that that first job, as it turns out, is actually a quite important job, for at least for most grads, in terms of starting to establish a trajectory for where their career is going to go. I think that's really the point. We have this great focus on education credentials as if they create your destiny. And they, they certainly contribute, but that's not the end of the story. A lot of change happens after the degree, and a lot of education happens after the degree. It doesn't happen in school, perhaps, but it happens in the workplace. My first job teaching, I learned more than I did in graduate school. And it's true in many fields, lawyers, doctors, engineers. We learn a great deal when we start work if we have the kind of job that builds on our training and that takes us further. And we need to recognize that because it is important that you make the right choice of job and it's important that you assess to what extent your first job is doing what you want it to do, because sometimes you have control over whether your work experiences take on the tasks where you're going to learn something versus the tasks where you're just turning out something. People it's just starting out should be mindful of what they're learning and what they're experiencing and the value of that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I guess, again, it gets back to helping people think about the choices that they make and how they impact in a future economic opportunity, if you will. Some other countries do a, perhaps a better job at this than we do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, Germany certainly comes to mind. Germany has a total belief that young people can do a lot of things that we think they can't do. And Steve Hamilton's study of German apprenticeships, he found 18-year-olds who are not college-educated doing clerical types jobs considerable responsibility. And he said, we don't think 18-year-olds can do that kind of thing in this country. And so we sell short the students, we sell short the experiences they get, we underutilize them, and we undertrain them. And so the German experience is one that tells us we could be doing a lot more. And it does require investment, partly from employers, perhaps from the government, but somebody needs to make these investments because without these initial investments, we basically lose a lot of capability that we could have otherwise. In Japan, there was a strong linkage between work and high school, and graduating students were recommended for certain jobs based upon their hard work and achievements in high school. In high school. 
Interesting. And these were these were direct linkages, direct relationships, where a local employer would say, well, we'll give you 20 slots. You nominate 20 people that you think are going to do a good job. Don't recommend someone that's not going to do a good job, because then we'll... Who's doing the recommending? The high school counselor. Oh, interesting. And so the high school counselor evaluates the students based largely on their grades and says, these are the students we think can do a good job, but they won't fill out their quota of 20 jobs with 20 people if they don't think they can handle it because they don't want to disappoint the employer. Why don't we do that in the U.S., do you think? I don't know why we don't do it. We come closer to doing it for college graduates, but we still don't do it. And it's such a missing link because instead we create competition among students on artificial criteria that don't matter. They compete on grades, they compete on number of activities, yeah. and you see these really amazing resumes, but none of it tells us anything we want to know. What employers want to know is they want to know about soft skills, they want to know about persistence, they want to know about attention to quality, they want to know about problem solving. None of those are in the resume. All of those are things that faculty could make recommendations about students, and we don't have a trusted linkage between teachers and employers, so we can't convey that information. So what's needed is a trusted relationship where the school says, we like having this kind of relationship, we will treat it seriously, we will give candid recommendations, and the employers will get valuable information, and they'll come back to us next year. You know, it does bring to mind, I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Capelli at Wharton. One of the things that he really opened my eyes up to was just how, despite how much employers say, you know, you know, talent is the most important thing. For the most part, they don't really invest a lot in it <laughs> and really yeah. thinking through these pipelines. And that creates, in some ways, contributes to a lot of the problems that exist in the labor market. So then we think about making it work better. There really is a role for almost all the key actors to play. It's not just things that the education institutions aren't doing. I don't know if that resonates with you or not. But the other side of this is so important and underappreciated. Once teachers give trusted recommendations and help students get jobs, all of a sudden teachers have authority and students have a reason to pay more attention and to develop mm. the kinds of skills the that the employers right. are looking for because a teacher can see that the students are working hard, that they are persisting, that they are problem solving, and that becomes an incentive system for the students to respond to. It's a great point. So as we kind of come here toward the end, Jim, one of our great ambitions in Virginia is we really aspire to be the state that is the best in the country at this topic, essentially at the whole range of things we might put under the label of human capital development. And part of that is helping improve these connections, helping people to better navigate the opportunities available to them and pursue those. You articulate some fabulous ideas, not only in your the most recent book we talked about earlier, but in some of your past writing. Some of those have already been implemented in some places, and others are promising, you know, based on research today. Do you think colleges, states, and or the federal government need to craft new structures to better enable these things to happen? It seems to me there's so many of these great ideas that just perhaps don't have a champion to really make them happen. And I wonder if perhaps part of the answer is some kind of structural shift. I think that's exactly right. And that's perhaps a weak point of the American system. We mistrust structure, we mistrust big government and big programs, and we love decentralization, we love individual initiative, and that's not gonna be enough. 
This is a big problem and we have big things to do. One of the biggest is alignment. We have very poor alignment between K-8 and high school, between high school and college, between uh, two-year colleges and four-year <laughs> right. colleges, all these and work. Very poor alignment and without alignment, we're at cross purposes. So we have high school exit exams, a wonderful idea for measuring the accomplishments of students. Unfortunately, students will pass the high school exit exam and three months later show up at a college where they <laughs> fail the remedial placement <laughs> exam. That's stupid. It's just poor interaction and alignment. And I wrote a piece recommending that we do alignment. Harper College in Illinois has actually done that. Really? The provost at Harper College, Judith Marwick, created an alignment system where the college remedial placement exam is given in 11th grade. And all of a sudden, you've got information about how prepared are you for college. And if you fail, that's great, that doesn't matter. But you've got a whole year to work on it. And that's what they do. They devote senior year to remedying the problems the students have. And that they're easily identified by this procedure. This alignment means that many more students enter college ready to do college level work. And it also says, we've got this missed opportunity. We got the high school trying to prepare students. We just don't have the right standards and curriculum in place. This kind of alignment does that. Now you can do the same story the next leap. The alignment between community college and four-year college is very poor. And four-year colleges allow students to transfer in and they make it very difficult to actually do that and inevitably students have taken many courses which don't match the courses that the four-year college expects. And even in the state of Illinois where we have an articulation agreement, that only covers electives. It doesn't cover the major. So here we've got this, this act that was intended to make everything count. It doesn't count for the major. So general ed may count, but you're an economics major, your economic courses may not count at all. And it's hard to anticipate that. One four-year college, actually, the guy who was in charge of deciding which credits counted said his job was to give people the bad news that much of what you've got doesn't count. And he said, maybe instead of that, I should be talking to entering community college students and telling them what they can take at that college right. that's gonna count at our college. And so basically he's, he's turned his job into advising students that he didn't even have yet. <laughs> that kind of misalignment is just inexcusable and it's easily fixed, but it is rarely fixed. And, and we need to do more to make that alignment work. Jim, was there anything else that you, you wanted to share that you think we should have touched on that perhaps we didn't? One thing that I'm struck by is we talk about the choice of degree as if it's an either or. And so people are told you can you choose. You a BA or less than a BA? Is yeah, a BA or an associate degree or a certificate. It's not either or. You can do both and. And I think we need to do more strategies where students will not just choose a goal, but they'll choose how to get to that goal. They may choose a BA, but do it by first getting a certificate, then getting an associate degree, then getting the BA. It may take a little longer, but it provides payoffs all the way along. Off-ramps at every stage, basically. That's right. Yeah. Students who have high risk of college being interrupted, students who have high risk of finding the courses too difficult, 
will get something along the way even if they don't get all the way to the to the BA. And it means that they have payoffs right away. It means they have better earnings to support their college careers. It means that they're getting a set of expertise that is valued from the very beginning. And we don't do enough of that. And I, I call it incremental success model. And it seems to me that incremental success is a great way to hedge your bets and a great way to get payoffs and to be able to leverage your job experiences with your training. It's a wonderful idea. Well, Jim, I want to thank you so much for taking time to visit with us today and especially for just the really outstanding and important work that you've done and that you continue to do. We've benefited from it in Virginia. I've benefited from it in my own career and I'm looking forward to staying in touch in the years ahead. Thank you. I enjoyed it also, Stephen. This podcast has been brought to you by the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. Thanks for listening.